This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. This episode of Vito Sit Down is brought to you by Motor City Pawn Brokers, the one-stop pawn shop when you're in need of short-term cash or are looking for quality brand name new and pre-owned merchandise. And with locations in Detroit, Ferndale, Roseville, and Warren, their mission is to deliver exceptional value. To find out more about Motor City Pawn Brokers, please visit MotorCityPawnBrokers.com. And welcome to the latest episode of Vito's Sit Down. I am your host, Vito Cherko. And the guest on this episode of Vito's Sit Down is former Major League Baseball pitcher Pat Hentgen, a two-time World Series champion with the Toronto Blue Jays in 1992 and 1993, and the American League Cy Young Award winner in 1996. We talked all about his Major League Baseball debut on September 3rd of 1991 against the Baltimore Orioles, him winning back-to-back World Series titles with the Toronto Blue Jays, plus his American League Cy Young Award campaign. All of that and more with Pat Hentgen right now. So we'll start off with this. You went to Frazier High School and you played baseball there. And what was it like for you being at Frazier? And what did Frazier High School teach you both on and off the baseball diamond? Frazier for me was a great place to grow up. I met a lot of great friends that I still stay in touch with today. I learned how to play football and baseball. I played basketball through 10th grade. And looking back on my experience at Frazier, just a great childhood, really nice upbringing and a great place to grow up. Now, when did you know that you had something going for yourself with baseball and with pitching specifically? Was it when you were at Frazier right before you graduated or when was it actually for you, Pat? I played ball all through the summer, and that's when I pitched. In high school ball, I didn't pitch much. I played shortstop. So it was about the seventh game of my senior year. I went in and asked Coach Bracci if I could pitch, and he said, well, we're a better club when you play shortstop. So we finally had back-to-back games in the same week, and I pitched game two of that week and pitched very well. And he called me in, and he said, I was wrong. He said, we're a better team when you pitch, so you're going to start pitching more. And then I, then I started pitching a lot my senior year. But prior to that, I pitched all the time in summer ball. I just didn't pitch much in school ball. I played primarily shortstop. So were you an Alan Trammell-esque shortstop? What kind of shortstop were you, too? Good hands, good arm, slow feet. And um, I think that looking back on it, the only position players, positions I could have probably succeeded in were probably one of the corner positions at first or third or potentially the catcher. I caught all the way through until I was about 16. And then when I got to high school, they, they put me at shortstop. But for me, I think looking back on it, getting to play at the level that I played at, playing a major league shortstop or even a professional shortstop in the minor leagues, you have to be the elite of the elite with it when it comes to foot speed, arm strength, and lateral range. Now, after graduating, you got drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays in 1986, and you moved your way up through the farm system. What was that experience like for you in the Toronto Blue Jays farm system? Well, you know, back then, we we came out of spring training, my first spring training. We didn't have the extended spring program that they currently have now for the players. Looking back, at my age, at 18, I would have probably stayed in the extended spring program. But because of the era that I come up in, I went right to the South Atlantic League at 18 and went on to have a pretty successful season there. You know, each year, I just moved up a level and kind of handled the challenge. It wasn't like I... um, deserve to get called up halfway through any of those seasons. I feel like looking back, it was a five-year experience 
they groomed me, they trained me, they they groomed my arm and and my work habits and taught me how to be a professional baseball player and answer the bell every fifth day and pitch. And I think that was very important. So you think your time in the minors then was very influential to you in succeeding at the major league level. And it's something for you that maybe without all that time in the minors that maybe you wouldn't have been as successful. Is that something that you think is applicable to you? Yeah, I do. I think that the the thing about it was it, it taught me how to answer the bell. And what I mean by that is, you know, no matter how your body feels, you get prepared, you get ready, you do all the preparation prior to your fifth day, and you're ready to, to pitch. A lot of guys have trouble having that preparation during the course of those four-day period where you have off. And I think that's the one thing that taught me in the minor leagues. Do I think I could have got to the big leagues a year sooner? Yeah, probably with a different team. I mean, we were World Series champions. We were 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. So it was a great four- or five-year run there. I got called up in September of 91. If I was with a lesser club, maybe i get called up in 90. Maybe i get called up in 89. At that time, though, there was we were not rushing people. Pat Gillick just had layers of players coming through the minor leagues. And so much depth on those Toronto Blue Jays teams, as you said already, and the rotation was good. All those pitchers, you guys won back-to-back World Series championships in 92 and 93. But back to you making your Major League debut. It came on September 3rd of 1991 in relief against the Baltimore Orioles. Did you know going into that game that you had a chance of making your big league debut? And what was that day like for you overall-wise, too? Great question. I faced Bob Melvin, who's currently the manager of the Oakland Athletics right now, and I remember warming up to go in the game. I have, first of all, I had no idea I was pitching that day. I was a reliever. I had no idea. The phone rang. Boom, you get, you're get warmed up. I warmed up, and as I walked off the bullpen mound, there was cement there, and I slipped off the mound and fell on my butt. And I remember Tom Hankey and Dwayne Ward looking down at me, laughing at me. You know. So as I approached the gate, they have a rubber mat there now. I, I, I call it the Henkin mat because I was the one that fell. But I, I, appro- I, I approach the gate, I walk out on the field, and I start to jog in, and I remember feeling like I couldn't feel my feet, I couldn't feel the field, I felt like I was running like on a cloud. And when I got out on the mound, I, all I kept thinking about was just throw strikes, just throw strikes, just throw strikes. And I, I call it hope mode. I was pitching in hope mode, and when my career really took off is when I started pitching in believe mode. And um, I went on to throw five straight fastballs, struck out Bob Melvin, I threw three strikes before I threw four balls. And, you know, looking back, it was just a great experience that, uh, you know, I'll just never forget. I can explain it like it was yesterday, and it was 30 years ago. What did you feel like after that? After that, I didn't pitch much. It was September of 91. We were we were winning. We were in first place. We were going to lock up the division. Uh, Cito Gasson at the time, the manager, he was going to go with what got him there. I didn't actually pitch again until – I pitched two innings that day in my debut. But I didn't pitch again until the last day of the season when they – clinched the twins clinched we were in minnesota cito called me and he said you're going to start the last game of the regular season so we can set up the rotation for the playoffs i was not on that playoff roster in 91 i was an alternate i believe so um i I went a long stretch without pitching but i'm proud to say that my first major league start was against the world series twins of 91 and i went five innings and give up one run so i feel pretty happy about that so playing for the aforementioned, the legendary former Toronto Blue Jays manager, Encito Gaston, what was that like for you? He was a people's guy. He was a player's manager. I mean, we only had two rules, be on time, play hard. Uh, he was open. He, he, you could talk to him about anything. And the one thing he always preached was family was first. So if you ever had any issues, you were allowed to go home. You were allowed to leave and miss a game. You could miss BP. Uh, it always ranked way over baseball. And I think that... Um, Looking back on my career and doing what I've done over the last 15 years in player development, I think it's more important that players know that you care before they care what you know. And I think Cito did that. 
So being a part of the Blue Jays organization when they won back-to-back World Series titles and pitching in 93 in the playoffs leading up to that World Series championship and the second of back-to-back World Series titles, what was that experience and season like for you specifically in 93 and then for you pitching in the playoffs as well leading into the World Series and into that championship? The 93 season, I came into spring training fighting for the five-hole with Al Leiter. Al Leiter had a better spring, and he beat me out. I went to the pen, and Dave Stewart ended up getting hurt his first start. So I filled in for Dave Stewart and won seven games in a row. And when Stewart came back, they put Leiter in the pen. I went on to be a starter for the team that year. We had a great team. We had a really good bullpen. We scored a lot of runs. We had one of the most explosive offenses. I think we finished 1-2-3. I know we finished 1-2-3 in the batting title. Just a really pleasure to pitch for a team like that. When you play for a team like that, it makes your job as a starting pitcher so much easier. Getting into that playoff atmosphere, when I started to pitch, I went to pitch my first game in the playoffs against the White Sox. Um, I knew facing Wilson Alvarez that we didn't touch him very well that year. We didn't hit him very well. Um, I think it was the third or fourth inning. I can't remember. I had two outs, and I had a couple guys on. It was a big play. It was a hard-hit ball to third. They scored it a hit. It could have been scored an error. It was a hard-hit ball. It would have been a really nice play by any third baseman in the big leagues. And then I just couldn't stop the bleeding. A couple C&I singles. It wasn't like they were they were scorching the ball, but they were just finding the holes, and it led to a big inning and knocked me out of the game. Um, my fo- the next start I made was in the World Series. I was scheduled to pitch Game Seven of the White Sox series, but we clinched in Game Six. Then actually, I went to uh, Philly and pitched Game Three. We split Games One and Two, and Game Three in Philly was an hour and a half rain delay. And the cool thing about Game uh, Three in Philly was. It was an hour and a half rain delay, and I was pacing in the locker room, and I walked out into the tunnel where the families are, and who do I run into? My father. And he's pacing, too. And I said, Dad, I said, you all right? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. And he he goes, are you all right, kid? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, I'm just going to go out and pitch my game. And uh, just a cool experience, a cool memory for me about game three was running into him at the tunnel. The odds of that happening are really, really slim. So I went out to pitch in Philly, and and. You know, I actually got in trouble in the first inning. I remember uh, John Crook, I think, doubled or somebody doubled down the left field or right field line. And Molitor plays first base in game three, and we, and he didn't play first base but five times all year. I remember the double down the right field line, runner on first. We have second and third, one out. Here comes the media lineup. This is the first inning. Granted, we did score three in the first, so that made it a lot easier. So I remember Molitor handed me the ball, and he said, I'm sorry about that, Pat. I should have had that. And I remember thinking, you know, what a what a selfless thing to say at that time. I ended up getting out of the inning. We went on to win the game. Incredible experience for me to to say that I pitched in a World Series game and actually got the win, and the team won. Great, great experience. I'll never forget it. And you were still a young ball player early on in your major league career in 93. So how surreal of an experience was it for you pitching in the postseason, pitching in the World Series as well at that point in your big league career? You know, at the time, I just thought, well, we're going to go back. My first two years in pro ball, we won minor league championships. My first two years in the big leagues, we won major league championships. I really thought that the team, the core, we were going to come back and go back to the playoffs again in 94. Unfortunately, injury, free agency, we did not make it back in 94 and, and never did again up until until 2015. So it was a 22-year period where we didn't make it to the playoffs. But, you know, you just you take things like that for granted. I, I actually felt like we were going to go back to the playoffs the next year. And it was eight years that I played after that World Series in Toronto and never did get to a playoff game. And that's why you can't take it for granted, right? Your early success, making the playoffs when you do, and that's why you want to win it when you get the chance to make the playoffs. So wanted to touch on your dad, too. How big of an influence was your father in your baseball career? Well, I tell people all the time that you have to have a hook partner, whether it's your wife, your best friend, a teammate, your agent, 
a buddy from high school, your dad. And um, it's somebody that you could talk to and they'll give you constructive criticism, hit you with it honestly. They're not going to sugarcoat it. They're not going to tell you what they think you might want to hear, but they're going to tell you what the truth is. And that was my wife and my father. I think I was lucky to be around those two. Uh, Yeah, my dad was a great influence for sure. Hard worker, never missed a day of work, great father, great mother, uh, great husband. You know, I'll sadly miss him. It's been three years now since I've lost him and and, uh, we were good buds. So now going into fast forwarding a little bit here and going into the 1996 campaign for you in which you won the American League Cy Young Award, did you feel like going into spring training of that year that you could have a magical season, a season in which you could capture and did eventually capture the American League Cy Young Award? Actually, no. In 93, I made the All-Star team. 94, I made the All-Star team. 95, I had kind of a down year. And I remember coming into spring training thinking, just get back to the basics. Let's get back to you know doing what I was doing in 93 and 94. Not that I didn't do that in 95, but just clear my mind, clean slate, start over with stats, and uh, let's just get off to a good start. The first half in 96, I actually didn't make the All-Star team and uh, went on to win the Cy Young that year. So I always find that ironic that I made three, but not the one that I made won the Cy Young in. So just got into a sweet spot. I mean, it was just one of those things where my body felt good. Uh, my location was good. I had a new catcher that showed me a little bit a different strategy of pitching. Uh, Charlie O'Brien came over from the Braves, and he was a Maddox guy, and he, and he caught the ball down and away. And we, we, we pitched more down and away that year. And I think that had something to do with me winning the Cy Young Award for sure. Uh, The team itself did not have a good year. I think we only had 72 or 73 wins that year. But the day that I pitched, guys played hard. Relievers came in and did their job. And that's how I ended up winning 20 games. I mean, it's a team effort to win a Cy Young. There's no doubt. It takes the catcher. It takes the position players to help you do that. Uh, But again, physically, I felt great. Mentally, I felt good. My confidence was really good. And I just was able to uh, steamroll and keep it going. I players like to call it the sweet spot, and I think that's what I did. I, I ended up staying in that sweet spot for a whole half. And when did you realize that you had what it took to win the Cy Young Award that season? When did it hit you mentally and physically that you had what it took to win the Cy Young Award? About three quarters through the year. You know, back then, USA Today used to post the top five leaderboards for all the pitching categories. And when you pick up the USA Today and you're on the road and you're in the hotel and you pick it up and you see your name in every category, you're starting to think, holy cow, you know, I, I actually can win the Cy Young Award. And then started, there was a little bit of buzz in Toronto in September. Um, at the time, Pettit was, was right there with me with wins. And, you know, analytically, they didn't look at it back then like they do today. Today, I probably would have won that award by a lot more, a bigger margin than what I actually won by. Because back then, all they cared about was wins. And I had 20, and Andy had 21. And, um, you know, but if you look at the actual stats, innings pitched, whip, strikeouts, all the stuff that complete games, all the kind of stuff that uh, goes into the new analytics and the new stats, I probably would have won that with a bigger margin. But anyway, long story short, it was just one of those things that I got really good support behind me, off the field, on the field, and just hit that sweet spot. And now you mentioned that when you were younger, early on in your big league career, that you would pitch hoping that you could get batters out and win. When did you start pitching with the belief that you could get batters out? Was it around that 96 season when you started really believing that you could get batters out? And it seems like it was before that, but when exactly do you feel like it started for you that you had the sense of belief in yourself that you could get it done? It was a spring training game with Mark Icorn. He came out of the game and sat next to me, and I said, how'd you do? And he said, I was wild. And I said, wild? He said, yeah. I said, how many did you walk? He goes, I didn't walk anyone. He goes, I was wild in the zone. 
And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I went home that night in my car and I thought, I'm looking at the game the whole, wrong. wrong. I, I was not challenging myself enough on the mound. I was happy to be in the strike zone. That was good. That was pinpoint for me. So when my mindset changed to throwing the ball down and away on the corner, up and in on the corner, down and in on the corner, the four quadrants, the four corners of the box, when I focused on that and not just being happy throwing it in the box, my career took off. That was my aha moment. And I became a fastball command, very effective starting pitcher for about a five-year stretch. And it was that moment that day in the locker room with Mark Eichhorn, who was a reliever at the time, sidearm soft tosser. So it, it really wasn't mechanics. It wasn't physical. It was mental. It was the mindset. And that's when I had that. That's when I jumped from hope to believe moan. And how big of a factor is the mental side of things in baseball? For me, it feels like even playing back in the day, Little League ball, that it was a major factor. Can you speak upon that? And when you've coached players too, how much do you emphasize being mentally tough? Oh, perseverance and grit in baseball, it's important because you fail so much and it's so hard to stay confident. The game humbles you so quickly and the higher the levels you move up, the better the talent is, obviously, and the more you get humbled. So very tough game mentally. Um, it's a skilled game. It's, it's a game that you have to be able to slow your heartbeat down. You know, we call it the third deck syndrome. Guys in AAA do really well. They get to the big leagues and they just struggle with their heart rate. They struggle with the anxiety. I think there's so much of it is mental. I work currently with the player development in AAA, the big leagues, and that, that level of player. And the biggest difference that I can find over the years is the mindset and the mental approach and the ability to slow the game down, the ability to block out distractions, whether it's crowd, umpire, errors, all the things you have no control over. When you can separate all those and just focus at the job at hand, and that's hit the glove with the ball and play catch with your catcher, the the simplifying of the process the quicker you go to the big leagues and the easier it is to stay. And now, unfortunately, later in your big league career, you had to undergo Tommy John surgery, and it's become a nationwide epidemic among youth ball players too. Sad but true. But back to you, and when you had to undergo it and then recovered from it, how tough was it for you to recover from that Tommy John surgery? Well, lucky for me, I had 10 years in the big leagues. So financially, I was secure. Uh, my confidence, I was secure. My, the time of my life, it was, a, it was at the end of my career, as opposed, I think it's much more challenging for a first-year pro ball guy or a high school or college player who's got all that self-doubt and whether they can do it or whether they can get there. For me, I had already had 10 years in the big leagues. I knew I could do it. So the rehab process mentally is a lot easier, I think, at that stage of the game. I, it was a 14-month grind. I was with the Orioles. We were down in Florida. I was going to their spring training complex three, four times a week doing all kinds of stretching and, and strengthening exercises and throwing. I came back from Tommy John. I think I pitched in the big leagues 13 months after the surgery. I was never the same. My ball didn't quite have the same zip or bite. It didn't have the same spin. Um, it felt fine. It felt the same, but the, the results weren't the same. The projection of the ball, I could just tell when it left my hand, it didn't have that same life. And I never did regain that life. Uh, I had to re- become a much more of a control pitcher. Um, I was actually a control pitcher before, but I really had to step up my game and be pinpoint after the surgery. So for all the people that say, oh, the guys come back throwing harder, my theory on that is the player that comes back throwing harder probably wasn't very strong going in, 
and was just God-given or just was able to throw the ball hard but didn't do a lot of shoulder and forearm maintenance. Then you have the surgery. You go, Now they put you on this forearm maintenance and the shoulder maintenance program, and now you start coming back throwing harder. I think it's because if, if you'd have done the shoulder maintenance and the forearm maintenance before you had the Tommy John, you probably would have been throwing harder before the surgery. And um, so the rehab f- focus is all shoulder. It's actually not much elbow or forearm. And the surgery is actually really good. The surgeons are really good. That's about 75% chance of returning. So I knew going in after the surgery, I was going to be fine. And, um, you know, I, I thank the surgeons in the modern medicine. And speaking of Tommy John surgery, once again, it's become a nationwide epidemic. And I interviewed Dr. Tommy John, Tommy John's son, and both of them now are out to really try to curtail the amount of kids, young ball players undergoing Tommy John surgery. What do you think can be done to resolve that issue to reverse the course, you know, that has become a lot of these youth ball players once again undergoing Tommy John? Play all four sports. I think that's probably number one key. You know, looking back, I played football, basketball, hockey, and baseball, and I don't care what other sports you pick. Just you get playing baseball year-round and pitching year-round. I mean, the grown men in the big leagues with four months off struggle. And they're at, towards the end of September, they start to see their velo drop. They start to see their stats uh, spike. So for an amateur player to be playing year-round and just isolating, I'm only going to be a pitcher, you know, that's another thing for me. Play a position. You know, the playing shortstop for me helped me on the mound. It helped me give a hitter's perspective. I, I, I can't stand it when I see a kid, what position do you play? Pitcher. Well, what other position do you play when you're not pitching? I don't. I just pitch. Try to play another position. I think it's very important to play first base, play the outfield, play catcher, do something else. You're working on a different muscle uh, group, and you're letting your pitching muscle groups rest. And I think that's the important thing is to play basketball, play football, and let those baseball muscles relax. And I think that would really help on the, the uh, Tommy John surgeries. And it seems like the trend is starting to go back in the direction of playing multiple sports. And I think it's good for, they say, for building muscles as well. Now, I want to get back to starting pitchers and how they're used nowadays. And it seems like to me, Pat, that more and more of these guys are babied. And that's a term that's thrown around because these guys aren't allowed to go deep into ball games like they once did. Now, why do you think that has become the case? And can the course be reversed with that trend? I think it's strictly the analytics of it. I mean, the stats show that third time through the lineup, the hitters don't do as well. I mean, the the opponent's uh, OPS will be 600 the first time, 700 the second time, and 900 the third time through the lineup. And teams are looking at 12, 13-man pitching staffs. I mean, I remember when I broke in, we had four or five relievers. I I remember the buzz in spring was we're going to carry six relievers, which was unheard of at the time. And now they're, every team carries seven, and some carry eight relievers. So the game's changed. They're going to match up. You're going to see more pitching staffs like the Brewers. You're going to see more like the Dodgers, You know where you're going to have matchups early on. The Rays started doing it early on in this, this past season. You know I've said for a while that I thought that there, a pitching staff may be nine three-inning pitchers, a lefty, and a closer. Now, you're always going to have your Chris Sales and your Verlanders, those guys are the elite of the elite in their Hall of Fame. But for the other 95% of the starting pitchers, you know, it's, it's, it makes sense. It makes sense to have more matchups. It makes sense to carry more pitchers if you're going to do this strategy. So, for instance, if you had nine guys that can go through the lineup once, a lefty and a closer, as opposed to five starting pitchers, five one-inning pitchers in the pen – a lefty and a closer. You know, so you really don't have a lot of multi-inning pitchers in the pen based on five, seven, eight, ten years ago. Now I see 
the trend is going with multi-inning pitchers, one through nine, a lefty and a closer. And um, you're going to always have, like I said, your Verlanders, and you just kind of massage your rotation around those types of pitchers that are Hall of Fame that can carry their stuff through seven or eight innings. Um, The problem is good luck trying to find those guys. Very hard to find starting pitchers that can do that. Well, then it it sounds like you think the concept of bullpenning is here for the long call. Because I was going to ask you about that, too. Is it simply a fad, or is it here for the long call? And you saw the Brewers, with Craig Council as manager, really implement that strategy of bullpenning. And Wade Miley came in, pitched to a batter in a game, then started the next game. Do you think bullpenning is around for the long-term future, then? I think it all depends on your roster. I mean, having optional relievers, meaning you can send these relievers to AAA and not lose them to another organization, that's going to be critical. Because... You're going you're not and during the regular season if you're going to try to bullpen you're going to have some major fatigue and you're going to have to send guys down to AAA or put them on the phantom 10-day DL and rest them. Um there's you're going to need depth if you do this. You're going to need more depth than you than you would if you had just had five starters. But again, I mean typically a major league staff will use 25 to 30 pitchers anyway in a regular season just cuz of injury and optional relievers and trades and but um you know, the starting pitchers, we've always said we need to have nine or ten of them. We'd like to have two layers of starting pitchers because of injury. I really think the bullpen thing is going to come down to your personnel, and each team's going to be a little bit different with that. Now, I want to bring up your former Blue Jays teammate, former Blue Jays ace Roy Holiday, who died a year ago, tragically, almost a year ago to the day of this recording. Now, what was he like as a teammate, Pat, and how great of a pitcher and a person was he off the field, too? Well, he was a robot as far as his work habits, routine, preparation, results. He was just Hall of Fame. He was better than everybody else in his era. And, you know, I always ask people, if if Roy Halladay doesn't make the Hall of Fame in the 2000s, in the late 90s to the, you know, who does? What pitcher should? This guy faced the toughest schedule of any pitcher other than the Orioles starters and maybe the Rays starting pitchers. Because they're facing the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Orioles 18 times each, facing the Rays 18 times each. And back then, they massaged the rotation so that Roy would get the Yankees. Even though he was scheduled to miss them, we're going into New York. No, 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 we're going to massage the rotation so that Doc gets the first game against New York because he's Doc. He's Doc Halliday. Um, tireless worker, held his teammates accountable, quiet guy, Did not was not a verbal leader. He led by example. But um, just a quiet guy off the field, quiet guy on the field, he came to the ballpark, he was ready to work, and he held his teammates accountable, and he didn't like you if you didn't work. Uh, He felt like you were cheating the team and cheating him. So uh, total pro, big loss. And so many tough batters to go up against in the American League East, as you mentioned, for Roy Holiday, for yourself back in the day. Now, who were some of the toughest batters for you to go up against? And I know there were a ton of guys that you probably can mention here, and who would you be willing to mention right now? Uh, Cecil Fielder gave me a lot of trouble. I think he had seven homers off me in the first three years I was in the league. I mean, he uh, he hit a changeup off the right field wall in Toronto and only got a single because it was hit so hard. It hit the wall before it hit the he left the batter's box. And I remember... Uh, Molitor was playing first that day, ironically, and he says, man, Big Daddy, how the heck do you hit a changeup off Henkin? He he throws two a game. And Big Daddy said, well, he shook three times. You know, he he shook his head, fastball once, curveball, slider, no, no, no. And then he said, I sat on the changeup because I figured that was his fourth pitch. And I remember from that day forward, I stopped shaking. I started staring, and I never nodded my head up and down or side to side ever again. So Cecil schooled me. 
Um, he just saw my pitches. He thought with me. He get, he had something on me, whether I was tipping my pitches or something. Cecil owned me for sure. Uh, Wade Boggs, you know, Bernie Williams, the era that I pitched in, Frank Thomas, Griffey, uh, Palmero, Jeter. You know, they were all the tough outs. All the names that I named were all just great outs. They they were uh, they were tough because they were patient, knew the strike zone, and had power, and could hit the ball to all fields. And when you can do that and combine those things, you're usually going to have an HOF in front of your name or borderline Hall of Fame. And those hitters were guys that you wanted up in those big-time opportunities, late in games to, you know, drive in those runs when you needed runs scored. Now, how about a pitcher? You know, looking at pitchers now that you would want in a big game, in a must-win situation among today's starting arms. Who would be the guy that you would pick? If you only could pick one to pitch in a must-win situation in a Game 7 type situation, who would that starting arm be for you? Probably Verlander. I mean, he's pitched some big games. He's had his back up against the wall many times. I mean, Scherzer's awfully elite, but he hasn't pitched in a lot of big games. He's really elite, though. I mean, he's very consistent. He strikes out a ton of guys. I'd say Verlander, Scherzer. I mean, I I like Sale, too. I think Sale's in that category, but he two years in a row, he's kind of slipped a little bit in September and August. Not August, but October. Um, just more fatigue. But he's been an incredible horse and a Hall of Famer up to this point. Um, If I had to pick one, I'd say Verlander. Now, I want to get to these comments that you made earlier this year, late in the summer, about double-A players, or double-A being the level that you believe is often the separator between those guys that are decent prospects and those guys that are major league quality players. Why do you believe that is often the case? The big thing is that um, once you get the pro ball, you got the elite of the amateur pool. So you got all the best college guys, all the best high school guys, and they're all thrown in A-ball. Then they kind of start to separate themselves in A-ball. Then there's three levels of A-ball. So when they get to the high level of A-ball, it's a really good level of baseball, and it's quick, and it's separated a lot of guys already. And it's an older league, too. It's probably you know college, right out of college type of uh, age group. And then the double-A level is like the all-star team of that group of that high level of A-ball. So you are really starting to weed out the non-consistent, up-and-down type of a player. You're starting to get a more consistent athlete that is got high-end stuff, high-end foot speed, power, whatever you're looking for, whether it's position player or pitcher. That double-A level is really starting to separate from the the drafted player, the low-A player, the guy that plays three years of A-ball and gets released. And he can say it for, and he's had a great career. It's an incredible accomplishment to get to professional baseball, period. And uh, But there's a lot of guys out there like that. A lot of guys get to A ball, but getting to double A, getting to the big leagues and staying is really the, the hardest challenge. And I remember as a minor league player, I remember thinking there's no way getting to the big leagues is easy. Like that was the saying, it's easy to get there, it's hard to stay. But then once I got there and I realized there's that is 100% truth. It is easy to get there and hard to stay. So you're currently a special assistant to the Toronto Blue Jays organization. Have you had the chance to watch Vlad Guerrero Jr. in person? And if so, what has that been like? Yeah, many times. Saw him in AA, saw him in AAA. Actually saw him in the Dominican, too, before we signed him. He was already a great hitter from the get-go. When I saw him at 16, he was hitting the ball over the wall. A big league wall at 16. Um, the bat speed was there. What's the most impressive thing about it, though, I think, is his strike-to-ball recognition. He doesn't chase a lot of balls at a young age. At 19 in AAA, you think you'd be able to get him to swing at balls in front of the plate and off the plate away and up and in. And He actually has a really patient eye. It's pretty impressive. Um, there's no doubt he's probably going to be one of those once-in-an-era type 
hitters in Toronto. So we just hope that he stays healthy and and uh, fills in <laughs> fulfills all the expectations because there's a lot of pressure on this young man right now. Uh, I think he'll be in Toronto at some point in April, and uh, I'm anxious to see it happen. I'm anxious to see what happens with Major League Pitching because I can tell you right now we've had lots of great prospects dominate the minor leagues, and they get to the big leagues, and the stuff's a little quicker. Pitchers are a little bit better at commanding the ball. They, they're better at locating the ball. And all of a sudden, you're like, wow, you know, there's not as many mistakes in an at-bat. You know, you face a guy like Chris Sale, he, you might get one pitch to hit. And if you don't hit it and you foul it off, you're done. So the big leagues is a big step. We, we'll have to wait and see. But as of right now, he looks fantastic. I think that uh, he's answered all the hype. And I think he will continue to do that in Toronto. So who does he remind you of? Any current hitters out there, former big leaguers that you went up against or that you just know of that he reminds you of? That's a great question. I, I, I don't really know if I have a comp on him. I'm trying to think of guys that I played in my era. Power, explosive, power to right. You know, I would say and it, the swing doesn't look the same, but Edgar Martinez, the line drive potential, the, the exit velo, the power to right center, the ability to stay on a curveball and pull it. I'm not saying this kid's going to be like Edgar, but I think that Edgar had a nicer, more of an inside approach swing, kind of an inside-out swing versus what Vladdy does. But, you know, players evolve and change. Right now, I would say that Edgar came to mind, but it's that's a tough comp, tough question. Yeah, to be Edgar Martinez one day, that'd be uh, incredible for Vlad Guerrero Jr. Now, for you as a special assistant to the Blue Jays organization, what does that job for you exactly entail? So I'm in player development. I work with the AAA squad which is in Buffalo, New York. Um, another set of eyes for the pitching coach, the farm director. I, my contact is basically the farm director and uh, the vice president of player development, Ben Sherrington. And um, I'm, uh, I've done some scouting. I, I get out. I saw four, four amateur players for the draft this year. Uh, they were all uh, pitchers, high school pitchers. And then I make a prep list and give them uh, my list of players and how I would pick them in the draft. Again, I only saw four. Uh, I go to Instructional Ball, which is our newly drafted players. We have a camp down in Florida after the minor league se- season ends. Again, I'm in full uniform I'm with the pitching coordinator. I'm with the pitching coaches. Um, I'm trying to help the coaches. I'm trying to help the pitchers. I'm another set of eyes. Um, I'm, I've uh, gone to Toronto for meetings with, with the 40-man meetings during the offseason. Sometimes they'll ask me up there for my input uh, because I know a lot of the young, some of the players that are up and coming. But I think the most important thing is building relationships with the pitchers and gaining their trust. And that, that takes place in the outfield shagging during batting practice. That takes place on the bus from Dunedin to Lakeland, and you're sitting with a pitcher. That takes place on the plane when, when I was in the big leagues as a bullpen coach. So I've been lucky and fortunate to wear a lot of different hats in the organization. I've, I've tasted the amateur scouting. I've tasted the professional scouting. I've done the Major League bullpen for a full season twice. I've uh, been in player development for over 10 years. So I've actually seen a lot of the facets of the organization. And uh, right now, I'm, my, my hot spot is Buffalo's my priority team. I'm trying to help those pitchers because, as we talked about earlier, we're going to use 30 big league pitchers, 25 at least. In a healthy season, we're going to use eight or nine starting pitchers for sure and probably 15 relievers for sure. So where are those pitchers at when they're not in Toronto? They're in Buffalo, and they're optionable, and we send them up and down and stuff. So the AAA staff is very important, uh, just like Toledo is to Detroit. 
We have Buffalo for Toronto. And so that's my priority team. I'm in Buffalo once a week, and I'm trying to uh, – not only am I trying to help the pitchers, but I'm also trying to keep them uh, confident, mentally ready. And I coincide with the big league pitching coach and the big league staff. Building relationships is so key in any industry, it seems like, and for you as well, Pat, and with the pitchers. And you mentioned that you were a bullpen coach for the Blue Jays at one point. Would you ever like to get back into coaching at the big league level? I think I would if, the, if it was right. You know, it all depends on the manager – the, um, the organization, obviously. But I think it's most importantly, it's the manager and the people you're around because you spend so much time together. You literally are together every day from noon to midnight, every day at the ballpark and on the planes and the hotels and eating together. And so you spend a ton of time with each other. And if it's not with a group of guys that you like and you're having fun, it could be a miserable long year. So baseball's it's a long grind. It's like a it's like a scab where somebody just kind of picks at it all the time and just keeps picking at it. That's, that's baseball. That's an injury in baseball. You never have time to rest. So it's the same with coaching. You, you, it's a grind when you're doing it every day. And uh, to get back into it, it's all about the people that I'm with. It's not so much the position. It's more about the people. So I'll leave you with this. Baseball, as you said, is such a mental and a physical grind. So you need your teammates and these guys that you get along with. When you were a big league player, who were some of those teammates for you that you were the closest with and formed the closest relationships with? Ed Sprague, Charlie O'Brien, Sean Green, uh, Woody Williams, Chris Carpenter, Roy Halladay, Alex Gonzalez. Um, these are all guys that we played together for years. Delgado. So it was just a great core of players when I look back of how much fun we had together, how hard we played, how we rooted for each other. And we all stay in touch to this to this day, so it's pretty darn cool. And actually, I just thought of one other thing. Daniel Norris, you got the chance to see him in the Jays organization. Do you think he still has a shot at really making it as a big league starting arm with the Tigers? Yeah, I think Daniel's about, what, 26, maybe 25, 26, 26. A lot of pitchers don't reach their prime until they get closer to 30. So... Love Daniel Norris. Great kid. You want your daughter to marry Daniel Norris. He's a great person. He's a, a honest person who's got incredible integrity, loyalty, hard worker, super athletic. Love his arm. Love his delivery. I'm really amazed he hasn't taken off more than he has. I still love him. I still think he has a chance. He's got a great high ceiling. Um, I still think he has a chance to be a really good starting pitcher. Well, Pat, with that, thank you much for all the time, for letting me come in your house and do this interview, and really appreciate it. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me.